Thank you, guys. My name is Brandy White. I'm the director of ministry here. And as Hallie uh, ex explained in the announcements, we are adding a new element to our worship services as we explore the biblical and ancient practice of generosity. So I want to share with you this liturgy. We're going to be using this one a lot over the coming weeks. And um, this week, you get it easy. You just get to listen. In the future, we're going to have you be more involved in like a call-in response with this. But for today, I just want to invite you to take a deep breath and let these words just kind of wash over you and pray along with me silently. Holy Father, there is nothing that I have that you have not given me. All I have and all I am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice, that is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call on Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of riches that choked the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of this world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Lord, above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous it is the delight of your daughters and your sons to share in your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. And the people of God said, Amen. Good morning. I'm going to read the central text for us today. It's Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Thank you, Tracy. Uh, my name's Chaz, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Amy Carmichael, Amy Carmichael, the English, I'm sorry, the Irish missionary uh, to India, uh, spent 55 years of her life serving in India, uh, having an incredible impact on many. Uh, she rescued many, uh, particularly girls and boys, from the, the, uh, the major evil going on at the time there, which was temple prostitution. She created an orphanage and a fellowship uh, and had a, quite a bit of influence on future missionaries, um, kind of an inspiration, but as well, uh, and even in, uh, was able to change laws in India in 1948 to outlaw temple prostitution. But she spent 
the last 20 years of her life bedridden. The last 20 years of her life literally not able to get out of bed. And if you've read any of her writings, any of her poems, her joy was steadfast throughout. And when she died in 1951, friends came to collect her belongings. There wasn't much. There's a bed, cabinet with a few books, a painting she really loved. And she certainly couldn't have been accused of being a hoarder except this one really fascinating discovery. In her room was this large volume of pictures. Pictures of friends through the years, of of children she had rescued, people she had loved, cherished, fought for, people, other missionaries that she had prayed for and served alongside with and suffered with, rendered immobile. Here's a person who wasn't putting her hope in getting out of bed, and yet her joy is taken to people. And as she's singing about people, she's full of joy. We're starting a new series this morning, and it's called Defiant Joy. Defiant Joy. And the word defiant, it means obstinate. It means rebellious. It means confrontational. It means particularly even sometimes uncooperative. can even be hostile. And certainly Amy Carmichael wouldn't be accused of being defiant. But her joy was. Her joy was defiant. Defiant joy is a joy that swims upstream. It doesn't cooperate with suffering. It doesn't cooperate with the circumstances. It doesn't wait for the circumstances to get better. It, it, it's there. It's right there in the trenches and all the suffering. And there's this, this joy that's somehow present, right? The word joy appears 14 times in the book of Philippians. And the apostle Paul wrote this book. And the amazing thing about it, in just four chapters, here's this word, joy, 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 joy. And Paul is rendered immobile as he's writing this letter. His, lo- his feet are locked in Roman stocks. He's in jail. And his arms and his hands are bound. And he's even having to have Timothy dictate the letter. He can't even literally physically write the letter. And here's a man. He was a rabbi who was once on the move all the time. And as an apostle, he's always traveling. And this time, there's not going to be a miracle earthquake. He has no idea when he's getting out. There's no hope. There's no certainty as to what the future may hold. And as he's sitting in prison, his heart is flooded for people half a world away. And I just, (laughs) I can't begin to tell you how convicting that really feels to me. How much I don't feel qualified to even be up here right now. Because when I'm suffering, I'm I'm swallowed up by hope of better days. (laughs) My mind goes there. I don't necessarily think about people I go to church with when I'm suffering and then feel better, okay? I love all of you, but it's not like the people I go to church with is the exact thing that will make me feel better as I think about that. Amy Carmichael, the Apostle Paul, is this even possible? Is this, is this superhuman? What do we make of it? Well, what we have this morning is more defiant love in our first installment. And there's a lot to look at, and it's so important. So we're going to look at that. How we must see ourselves and others. What binds us together in the affections that fall. Defiant love. How we must see ourselves and others. What binds us together in the affections that follow. So let's take a look. Um, now, when you start a new, when pastors like me start a new series, one of the things you do is you do, you just kind of just front load all this background information and it starts to not feel like a sermon anymore, more feels like a history class. So I'm not going to do that. Uh, if you want to look at more background, what you can do is just check out our resource doc. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, 
It goes out every Friday. Just fill out a Connect card. We'll get you on that. But here's what I want to do. Uh, first of all, let's just kind of take a look where it is. Uh, it's one of Paul's, uh, in the second missionary journey, he founded this, and the first one in, in Europe. But here it is in sort of modern-day Greece. And now you may not be, you may not even be remotely familiar with Philippi or the book of Philippians, but you are familiar with Philippi the city. Now, how do I know this? Because you had high school English, and in high school English class, Shakespeare, Julius Caesar, Et tu Brute, all that took place there in Philippi. There was a civil war in 42 BC, and all these people fought there, you know, in the Roman Empire. And after that, uh, the city became this bastion. Uh, it was like the prize jewel of the Roman Empire. Uh, you know, it's just there's a lot of pride there. It's just sort of this major outpost for the Roman Empire. But the other thing is, this is where a lot of retired Roman soldiers would go to live, all right? So like these weird places I grew up with in central Florida where everybody just flocks to and weird things happen there. Uh, like if you were retiring and you were a soldier, like you're spending your days in Philippi playing pickleball or something, um, or go into your version of Babries at 4 p.m. there in downtown Philippi. But this was a bastion of Roman pride, Roman nationalism, God and country, flying the flag. And that was easy because who was God? It was Caesar. Caesar was Lord. Now, why am I sharing all this? Because later in the book, the Apostle Paul will show how radical and how important, especially when we get into crazy election season or the next year, that this is. When we get into chapter 3, this, this is the place. Like everything that matters in life is you're a Roman citizen. And Paul says, the heck with that. You're citizens of a kingdom that's not of this world. He literally says, you're citizens of heaven now. He's not paying attention to all that. He's saying you're, you're, your identity, and he's counting all the idols of the day, is wrapped up not in being Roman and your country and fighting for it, it's wrapped up in being a citizen of a kingdom that's not of this world. But one of the things that really stand out is in the Roman Empire, uh, leadership and authority and power was all top down. So for example, uh, there's this encounter Jesus Christ has with the man, the Roman centurion. How many are familiar with that encounter? A lot of you. This man comes to Jesus and he looks at Jesus and he says, well, he's got a lot of power and authority because look at all the miracles he's doing. And so the first thing in his mind is, well, then you're not worthy to come in my house because you're very powerful. And as he's talking to Jesus, he says, but I'm asking, will you please heal my son? And here's, here's what I know, because if you just say the word, he'll be healed, because I know how authority works. I tell people to do stuff, they do it. <laughs> I say this one, do this, they go. Come and they come. That's how authority worked. And the Apostle Paul speaking to people in this bastion of Roman pride and God and country, and the first thing out of his mouth is, hi, I'm Paul. And he's not talking about I'm the guy who founded the church. He's saying, I'm a servant. That's the word slave, <laughs> okay? It's the word slave. Wow. The word slave in Rome meant you're not just a bottom feeder. It means that you're not even human. Women, children, slaves, they were not treated with the same dignity, value, and worth as everybody else was. And the Apostle Paul begins a letter to people living in this kind of city, and he says the first thing out of his mouth is saying, because I'm united to Christ, I'm a servant, I'm a slave. 
This is how I see myself. Now, why is he saying that? Because we'll see it next couple weeks. Jesus Christ humbled himself and made himself a servant to humanity. He made himself a slave. Jesus Christ came to die and to serve and to give his life away as a ransom for many. And he's saying, this is not Paul saying, well, you know, I'm just false humility here. He's saying, because I'm united Jesus Christ, you know, first thing that I look at when I look at myself is not that I'm Roman or what I've accomplished in life. It's that I'm a servant because I'm united to Jesus. And that's the kind of stuff Jesus is, did. And that's what he is. And because the Apostle Paul is, is doing this, there's a reason why. Because there's all this opposition happening to this church. They're facing a little bit of persecution. Nothing like we saw in the last series we went through. But, but also, <laughs> there's opposition within inside the church. There, we'll see it next week. People are selfish. <laughs> it's church. People are self-centered. Uh, they're being competitive and envious. In fact, this just makes me laugh. Like, we have these people's poor names from 2,000 years ago. Apparently, Eudodia and Sintish are in a fight, okay? And here we are. To, I mean, poor them. Like, way to get in a fight. And it's recorded in human history here. But they're fighting, Okay? They're getting persecuted. There's the only church in town, and they're still fighting. This makes me laugh. But why does this matter? Because you come to a book like Philippians, and it's just like, oh, here's Philippians. These are real people. And real faces and names from 2,000 years ago encounter this. Paul starts and says, I'm a servant. But now we get into the really nitty-gritty stuff. And with that view, who is everybody else in the church? Saints. (laughs) Saints. <laughs> Saints. Wow, that does, that, does that include Judea and Sintish? Yes, it does. Does that include the people who are being selfish? The people who are very needy, who rarely give back? The people who are really, really challenging? The people who are just exhausting to deal with, that are in meetings and they're brash and they're overly opinionated and insensitive? Who, when you enter a conversation, start sharing weird conspiracy theories and you just want to get out of the conversation. Yes. Paul's talking about that. All the saints. He's talking about the people in the church who educate their children differently than you. The people who complain. Who talk about themselves so much and their accomplishments. Want the church to be run differently. It's one thing to talk about saintly people. Like James and Jane Lychaco. Like, you're easy, okay? You made it in a sermon today. There you go. But there are certain kinds of people you go to church with and like, oh, they're a bunch of saints. They're a bunch of saints. But the Apostle Paul begins in this city with a view of himself and then a view of others, and he has the audacity to call himself a slave and everyone in this church a saint. Perhaps maybe this is what C.S. Lewis was stealing from when he said this. He said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. But it is the immortals whom we joke with, whom we marry, we snob, exploit immortal horrors of everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment, our joy, must be of that kind, and in fact it is the greatest, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. 
Nicholas Kristof wrote an article this Thursday. He's an opinion columnist for the New York Times. And uh, essentially what he's talking about and sharing is that the first time in United States history, Gallup poll, the first time ever this has happened, where less than 50% of the people um, surveyed say they go to church or identify as a Christian. It's never been that low before. Uh, And some guys, that one of the guys I went to seminary with, his name is Michael Graham. He co-wrote a book with a guy named Jim Davis called The Great Dechurching. I don't know if anybody's heard of that. The New York Times was actually quoting these guys. And one of the things they point out, they said more people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the new people who became Christians from the first Great Awakening, the second Great Awakening, and every single Billy Graham crusade combined. That's a lot of people, and there are more people in just 25 years who've said, the heck with this stuff. Why am I sharing all this stuff with you? Why are we making such a big deal out of one verse? Because some of you are adding it up and saying, we're going to be here till 4 p.m. at this rate, okay? Why, in the mere introduction, we read introductions of sermons, uh, you know, and we're like, okay, that's neat. You know, it just glosses right over us. Here's why I'm making a big deal of it. You know, Francis Schaeffer said, there's many reasons why people leave the church. And in that book, they're citing that. But Jesus said stuff to his disciples before he departed this earth. And Schaeffer points this out, why this mere small little words in introduction matters so much. Because it's without true Christians loving one another, Christ says the world can't expect it to listen. Even when we give proper answers, let's be careful to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. And for years, the Orthodox evangelical church has done very poorly. So it is well to spend the time learning to answer the questions of who men, uh, who are about us. But after we've done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives us is the observable love of of, of true Christians for true Christians. While it is certainly true that over the last 25 years, more people have left the church in in our history, while it is certainly true many Gen Zers find no interest, no reason to even explore church, and while many Christians right now are seeing this and are full of fear and are scrambling and scratching and clawing and looking for some way to gain some sort of cultural, moral high ground, some sort of political power back and influence, Christianity and the Bible and history have shown when the churches are actually growing exponentially, do you know what they're doing? They're doing verse 1. They're starting out and saying, I'm united to Christ. I'm a slave. I'm a servant of others. I'm a servant of others. And when I look at even the people who are most unlike myself, they're a saint even when they're challenging, because if they're a Christian, they have the righteousness of Christ. And that's how I must view them. It's really hard to do. But history has shown this has worked. There's a letter by, um, I don't have it in here, I'll just read it to you, by a, a Christian opponent in the first century. And we'll go quicker in the second, third points. It's called The Letter to Diognetus. And this man was asking him, Diognetus, who was a very strong opponent against Christianity, what is with these weirdos who are growing, multiplying like crazy right now? What's going on? This is around 130 AD. Tell me what you see It's happening down there. I need reports. And he wrote, he said, well, I'll tell you. 
They display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, like Philippi, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if they're foreigners. Every foreign land to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they don't destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Wow, we just read that. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and are restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They're dishonored. And yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They're reviled and they bless. They're insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. And when punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are sailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to sign any reason for their hatred. Do you begin to see why the Apostle Paul in a city like that is starting out with such a radical, dangerous moniker for the way you see yourself and others, and it worked. Now, what does this mean? Let's take a look at the second point. Like, like I said, we'll go quicker, but one of the things about this book, uh, the letter, is, is really a thank you note for a gift. The church was very generous. Church in Philippi was, hands down, the most financially generous church in spite of their lack of resources, uh, and they were supporting Paul while he was in prison because prison was BYOP, <laughs> you know, bring your own provisions or you die, okay? There's no meals. There's anything like that. So he's thanking them, and he, he, he takes this word, and we again just gloss over. He says, well, I want to thank you for your partnership. Okay, you know, as I'm a missionary, i got to write a thank you note for, for your financial gift or whatever. But you know what? what in the, the word he uses is the Greek word koinonia. Has anybody ever heard of the Greek word koinonia before? Now, a lot of you are like, well, yeah, that's a Christian term. No, it's not, actually. The Apostle Paul takes this word. This is really amazing stuff. So he takes this secular word, koinonia, which means partnerships. And what did that mean? Well, it just meant, you know, hey, we're family members. We're in koinonia. Hey, we have a business deal. We, we own property together. We, we're in business together. We have uh, koinonia together. And of course, in Philippi, Roman nationalism was the koinonia. We're joined together because of our rich history going way back when, when the Civil War was fought here. We love this place. We are part of an outpost of this empire. This is what joins us together. God and country and Caesar. Hail Caesar. But when the Christians came and Paul comes into town, you've got these people who never knew each other. And all of a sudden, they're in koinonia together. And they had no religious background. They weren't Jewish. They were Gentiles. So the only thing they shared in common before Paul strolls on the town and plants this church is that they were Roman, okay? And Paul takes this word, and he says the koinonia that the Christian has is not just deeper. 
it's radically different. Here's why. He's saying the koinonia that any Christian has in a church is not based on mutual interest. It's not based on politics. It's not based on national pride. It's not based on we all educate our children kind of the same way. It's not based on race. Not based on gender, social status, economic status, even your hobbies. As a servant and as a person who's seeing themselves as, as someone who sees everybody else as a saint, and now I'm tied together, like I am tied to you, like there are chains on both of us, and where you go and I go, we're stuck together. And he's saying, it's the koinonia of the gospel. That real, it's the only thing that binds any Christian, anybody in this room together. Because he's saying that's what makes us all saints as we're, if you're a Christian. And then why they were calling each other saints and sisters and brothers in the first century is because they actually believed this. We share in the same salvation, Paul is saying. We share in the same hope. We're experiencing suffering together. We experience the same joy. We are experiencing the same common desire to see God's kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. And we're facing opposition inside the church, and we're facing opposition out. Paul's in prison. How is this going to stay together? And he has got this robust confidence that this koinonia that they had would not be severed. Why? Because the Christian koinonia is not based on mutual interest. It's not based on temporary associations. It's not based on our kids play soccer together or we live in some of the same neighborhoods or we work at the same place. Then in the first century and now, the entire koinonia that a Christian has is based on the fact that you are tied together in the gospel. And that's why Jesus said these bold things like the gates of hell will not prevail over the church because of this koinonia. That's why they were calling each other servants other saints, and the way they even viewed each other. Think about this. The most difficult people in your life, people that are really challenging, and by this view, people were actually reaching into the future and saying, I can see what Jesus is going to do in this person's life, that he is the author and perfecter of their salvation, and I am looking ahead and working backwards in the way I choose to view that person. Because one day they are going to be so beautiful you'd be tempted to worship. This is defiant love. Can you see now? This is defiant love. Why? Because we don't love like that. We all want to love based on something that's more like ourselves, don't we? I do. I want to love people who think more like me, vote like me, or share the same music, view the same education that I do for kids. But here you are, this Philippian koinonia, and here's in Rome, where, yeah, you've got Roman koinonia, but it didn't work for slaves. It didn't work for women. And it did not work for children. It did not work for poor. It did not work for the marginalized. And here's Christianity, radically different than that. But here's this koinonia that I am now tied together with somebody who might be the opposite version of myself. Different race, different status, different gender, different role in life. This was radical in the first century, and it's still radical now, and I'll tell you why. Because the number one thing that we are most tied now, if there's one message, whether you're on the political left or political right, that is the same for us today, reinforces Americans, is that koinonia now is found primarily 
in ourselves. We've been taught since pre-K that the koinonia we most need in life is the koinonia with ourselves. So I'm reading this book right now called Generations from Jin Twingy. I don't know how to say her last name. Twingy, Twiggy, I'm not sure. But she's a, a philosophy professor at San Diego State. Uh, kind of a data nerd, just throwing charts left and right, and they are just mind-blowing. And one of the things she, early on in the book, and you'll hear more from her later on because I'm still reading it, is, I don't know if you can all see this. Can everybody see this? Okay. Uh, in American literature, in American books, individualistic phrases to about the year 2000 were like this, okay? Like phrases like, I love me, just be yourself, you do you, I am special. Uh, <coughs> all of a sudden you get to the year 2000, and it just takes this precipitous spike. And I don't know exactly what it was that did it. The cynical part of me says it's because that's when they started handing out participation trophies, maybe. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, uh, when Y2K. Uh, but this is our koinonia. It's, data doesn't lie. You do you. Love yourself. Uh, and the interesting thing is whether you're on the left or on the right, this is, both, this is the only thing conservatives and liberals agree on, is we're here for the rights of the people. They don't agree on those rights at all, but we're both actually in agreement that the thing that we most want to reinforce is personal, individual rights. Individualism. That's our koinonia. And it is not working at all. Because as you watch this, here's this. Look at this. Well, guess what the next one looks like? Depression. Inability to socialize. Failure to launch. Decrease in socialization. Rapidly going up. And wow, increase in depression. We've got a koinonia problem right here, don't we? What's the next one? Mental health days. Here we go. Sorry, that sounded cynical. But anyway, uh, <laughs> Wow. It's just continuing to go up, especially among the generation that has most been told, koinonia is with yourself. You do you. You do you. The human heart was not designed to ever spend this amount of time focusing on ourselves. We're just not meant, God didn't wire us like that. And one of the most joyless people in life will be doing this. We've all been there. But the most joyful people, whether you're a Christian or not, we, we all agree, the most joyful people you've ever met in life are not thinking about themselves. They are serving others, aren't they? They are. It's just a fact. And, uh, but it's not just any koinonia. We've got a koinonia problem, but it's not just any koinonia that will do. Because here's another illustration. Her name is uh, Shawnee Zhang, and she's an illustrator she just came out with something this week, and here's a person who grew up hearing, you do you, uh, you do this, and she grew up basically isolated and didn't even know it till she went off to college. And all of a sudden, the first time in her life, as she's 18, 19 years old, got these college roommates, and she just, it's like, wow, I had no idea what this could be like to have this. But then the reality is, she's lamenting the fact that they, after college, they kind of just all went the other way. So she wrote this thing, my college roommates are half a world away, 
what does that mean for our koinonia? As a kid, I was good at entertaining myself. I didn't realize my life was lonely until college when my solitude was interrupted by sustained closeness for the first time. And my closest friends in college were my roommates, and I'm most loving when I get to witness someone that exists. And look closely at someone who sleeps five feet away from you, and every night, and it feels inevitable, like how a baby duck can't help imparting on its mother. My affections, Amy Carmichael, Paul, my affections started coming out. They slipped easily into everyday tasks I'm serving. For example, taking my roommates on walks when I noticed they'd been staring at the same essay for six hours or discovering cereal was their comfort food and buying it for them. Milk before finals week. Then after college, without roommates to fuss over, I rarely took the initiative to seek people out. And when I lived alone, I preserved, I preferred to dissolve it in myself rather than admit I was lonely. And the year after graduating, instead of meeting people at happy hours or house parties, I stayed at home to talk on the phone with friends in different time zones. And my most frequent web searches are time in Tel Aviv or time in Lahore or time in London. Sustaining emotional closeness without physical closeness is hard. And outside of my long-distance friendships, it's been, I've been reluctant to invest in anyone new, a hesitance I didn't have before. And I'm a ghost in every group chat. It's easier to float through them than to connect with the people around me. I tell myself I have all the friends I need. In a way, it's true. I do feel loved, even though love feels like a phone pressed to my ear. I'm no longer alone in my internal world, but most days I feel quite alone in the physical one. And to my friends, I can pretend I haven't lost you as long as I can still say you're the people who know me best. I'm telling the truth as no one here really knows me at all. If I were braver, I'd add, our waking hours never align anymore, and you appear in my thoughts far more than my inbox these days. I'm scared. I'm going to lose you. And I don't want to admit we're diverging and becoming less and less noble to each other because you'll always be special to me as if we were baby ducks in each other's mothers. Our lives have changed, and I've not allowed myself to adapt, but I'd like to. I'd like to re reinvent what closeness means, what friendship means for us. What happened? The koinonia wasn't enough, was it? Shared interests of being roommates. It gave, you a, gave her a taste of this. It reinvented her world. But it wasn't enough. Paul's not saying if you become a Christian, you'll be a better long-distance friend. But he will say, you'll be tethered, tied together into something that not even the gates of hell can withstand. That's serious stuff right there. That is countercultural stop. How do we do it? I'll, I'll finish here. You can see the affections Paul has, just like Azani did for her roommates. And it bears repeating. This is a man in jail as he's writing. His heart, as he thinks of these people that he shared nothing in common with and became tethered into the gospel, he's filled with joy and deepest affections. You know, Paul later says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, and abundance, and need, and I can do all things who strengthens me. But I think he learned some of that just staying in a community. You know, the church of Jesus Christ serves as wavy like the town was 200 years ago, where you had to work out your stuff. Because if you didn't, and you just wrote off your neighbors, you might not survive winter. And the church Jesus has given you to withstand the gates of hell, so that you're going to need to be tethered to others, even the people who drive you crazy. 
And the only way he can do that is with that koinonia is something that's actually real, based on something that happened, his resurrection. And if that's true, then it means you literally, today, if you're a Christian, are a saint, and you are a servant. And that is what he is reinforcing over and over. In fact, and if you do something, you may not feel great about somebody on day one, not even in year five, but you keep doing this, those feelings would come. Happened to me at the barbecue last week or at the Apple Fest. I'm sitting with people and I'm just, I'm like, I really love these people. Like from my emotional state. And look at that. You look at verse uh, eight. He says, I yearn with you all the affection of Christ Jesus. The old King James says, for God is my record, how greatly I long after you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Wow. The deepest level. It's highly doubtful he had these feelings in the beginning. These sorts of feelings can only come when you've been in the arena together, served alongside, prayed with, and for. You've cried together. You've laughed together. How did Paul do it? How did these people do it that even non-Christians of the first century said, we see this? He saw himself as a servant. Do you hear it? A doulos, a slave to others. He saw others as saintly sisters and brothers. And then Paul tied himself to them in his heart and with his life. And the love they felt for one another is not something to stand back and be amazed at Paul's exemplary character, but rather the power of divine love that came into his life. This was a man, when he was on the way to kill people, that's when he encountered this love. Jesus. Jesus Paul was a zealous murderer. He hated people who disagreed with him. This was a man who, through encountering the risen and glorified Jesus, experienced the affection of Jesus. And Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And while at times the gates of hell feels like it has breached the church through its own poor witness to the world, pandemics, political unrest, political idolatry, divisive gossip, apathy and indifference of just coming to church, unresolved conflict, the gates of hell shall not prevail because Jesus is the head of the church. He breached the gates of hell for every single one of us in this room. How? As we'll see in just a few weeks, he made himself a slave. Jesus came to earth because his bowels were stirred with eternal love and affection for us, his bride, the church. Because he has foreloved us. And he didn't have to wait for his feelings to follow. He had them for you and I for all eternity. And out of that deep affection, he came to serve by laying down his life so that he can make call us his saints, his holy ones his saintly sisters and brothers. Jesus calls you his friend. That's remarkable. Perhaps just 150 years ago, as I said, you had to work stuff out in community. And you were just tied to that area. But Jesus gave you his church to do that in your life. It's his gift. So that you can prevail against the onslaught of hell. And the church has faces, it has names, and quirky people. Do you hold it in your heart? Lord, I just repent. I am incredibly tempted to write people off 
that I share nothing in common with and or the first time I meet him say, I have nothing in common here. And I just repent for not seeing myself as a servant like this. And I also repent for not actually seeing people as saints or even peeking into the future of what these saints today will be like tomorrow. And I know that not just here, but especially nationally and globally, Lord, we all of us have a lot of repenting to do in this area, and we want to own that collectively. So thank you. Thank you for one verse that we would just normally gloss over that gives us such an incredible opportunity to experience a community we've all been waiting for our whole entire lives and to truly have that great apologetic for the world. Amen.